Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Ancestry.com.au. You've seen the faded sepia photograph, but how tall was your great-grandfather? How much did he weigh? What colour were his eyes? And did he really have a mermaid tattoo? These are the sort of details that can turn a family tree into a colourful and compelling personal history. And they're the sort of details you can sometimes discover in military and or police records at Ancestry.com.au. I use Ancestry constantly to research and write this podcast, and it could help you piece your past together too. For more information, go to Ancestry.com.au because there could be more to your story. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respect to Aboriginal elders, past and present. This podcast contains references to suicide and sexual assault and descriptions of fatal violence. Listener discretion is advised. It's just after 10 on the morning of Tuesday the 19th of June 1917 and the Central Criminal Court in Sydney is hearing closing arguments in the case against Keith Shaw for the murder of George King at the California boarding house in Gatumba on the 2nd of April. Defence barrister Mr Boyce began closing yesterday, but Justice Mr Pring had to adjourn and sequester the 12 men good and true of the jury overnight. This morning, Mr Boyce continues... His argument to the jury is that they've heard conclusively that Keith Shaw was born into a bloodline with a proven tendency to insanity. His behaviour before, during and after the attack on Mr King was and continues to be consistent with him not being of sound mind. The very motive suggested by the Crown, Mr Boyce says, proves insanity. No sane person would commit such a savage murder for a ring of such modest value. So the jury must find the accused not guilty on these grounds. The Crown Prosecutor, Mr Harris, closes by outlining the clear evidence that the accused planned and carried out the murder for the diamond ring and then demonstrated his guilty mind in his statements and by his actions. Mr Harris says that if the jury accepts that Keith Shaw is insane, if they acquit him for this reason, they're saying they believe he had no idea in his mind that battering a man to death was wrong and thus he bears no responsibility for the murder. Summing up, Mr Justice Pring explains the laws governing insanity to the jury. The jury retires at 10.45am. If they find Keith Shaw guilty, he'll be sentenced to death and it has to weigh on their minds that this sentence may very well be carried out. After all, in the past six months, four men have been hanged in New South Wales. I'm Michael Adams, and this is the third and final part of the Forgotten Australia episode, Bloody Murder in the Blue Mountains. 
Just a reminder, the first Forgotten Australia Book Club episode featuring Peter Doyle and his book Suburban Noir is coming up. I've extended the deadline for questions just in case you're still reading and you'd like to ask Peter something. So get your question or questions in by the 8th of May. You can record them via speakpipe.com forward slash Forgotten Australia or drop me an email at ForgottenAustraliaPodcast at gmail.com. There's more information about the book club in your show notes. At 11.45am, Keith Shaw's jury returned. His heart must have sunk. A short deliberation in such a case would usually mean the jury didn't have much to discuss and had reached a guilty verdict. But in this case, the foreman only wanted to ask a question about the evidence. He asked his honour if the police had made inquiries about when the accused purchased the hammer. The jury wanted to know if Keith had bought it before or after Mr King had arrived in Katoomba. The answer could help them ponder whether he'd had it on hand and had used it in a fit of madness, or he'd bought it especially as part of a plan to rob and kill. Mr Justice Pring allowed Detective Devlin to answer, and he said, quote, I made inquiries about the purchase at Mullaney's on the Saturday. That was the day after Mr King's arrival. Hearing this, Keith shouted from the dock, I bought it two weeks previously. In his original statement to the police, he'd said he'd bought it on the Saturday. But he might have been able to make this claim because at the inquest, a Mullaney store employee had been unable to identify either Keith or Lionel as having bought the hammer he remembered selling that day. That store clerk had not been called as a witness in the trial. Mr Justice Pring immediately realised the mistake he'd made in allowing the jury to ask that question and allowing Detective Devlin to answer it. He said at once to the jury, I ought to have stopped you because the inquiries he made are really no evidence here. The evidence was inadmissible and his honour instructed the jury to disregard it when they returned to their deliberations. And back to the jury room they went. While they were still hashing it out, a new jury was sworn in and they'd now hear the case against Lionel Shaw, charged with being an accomplice in the murder of George King. Mr Justice Pring would again preside, and Mr Harris would again be Crown Prosecutor. The evidence tendered against Lionel focused on the two contradictory statements he'd made to Detective Devlin. In the first, Lionel had failed to say that he'd given his brother money to help him flee, and he denied that he'd known where the ring was or had done anything with it. But in his second statement, he'd admitted he'd given his brother money and that he'd taken and hidden the ring. Lionel entered the box to speak to the jury in a low, halting voice. He claimed that whatever he'd said on that day was the result of shock. Lionel claimed that he'd been helped by detectives into making whatever statements he'd given. As for hiding the ring, he'd done it, but done it simply to console his brother. Lionel told the jury, quote, Had I any intention of keeping that ring, I could have done so, but having as I have all my life been honest and even had my honesty condescended to lower itself low enough to keep the ring, my superstition would not have allowed it. So, you see, it was the overwhelming love for my brother that brings me before you today. What Lionel had just said managed to be condescending, contradictory and confusing. He seemed to be saying that he was unfailingly honest while also saying if his honesty had failed him, he wouldn't have kept the ring anyway because it would have been bad luck. And somehow, 
hiding the ring and then lying about it was supposed to demonstrate his absolute devotion to Keith. Lionel's jury retired at 1pm. Keith's jury was back a little more than an hour later. On the charge that he'd murdered George King, Keith Shaw was guilty. But the jury's verdict came with a strong recommendation to Mercy on the grounds that his mental faculties were below normal. This seemed like a wise verdict. Though what he'd been thinking at the time of the crime wasn't possible to know, it did seem quite clear that Keith Shaw wasn't right in the head, and that he hadn't been for some time. Asked if he had anything to say before sentence was passed, Keith replied, I won't say anything yet, Your Honour. I will say something later, Your Honour. Mr Justice Pring sentenced Keith to death, noting the jury's recommendation to mercy would be considered by the state executive. Keith didn't display any emotion. At 3pm, Lionel's jury returned. On the charge of being an accomplice to murder, they found him not guilty. Lionel's argument that he'd only acted out of shock and out of love seemed to have found sympathy. There wasn't sufficient evidence that he'd been in on the killing or that he'd known about it in the immediate aftermath. Of all the headlines around Australia, Brisbane Truth crammed in the most colourful details. Their headline read, Mountain murder, the killing of Traveller King, Herbert Shaw dazzled by a diamond, letters to a lady, all mad at Long Bay, Shaw found guilty and sentenced to death. But the story was far from over. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Keith Shaw was now in Long Bay, without his brother, and standing in the shadow of the gallows. At the start of July, he sought leave to appeal before the full court of New South Wales. Keith's barrister, Mr Breckenridge, presented the grounds for a new trial to Mr Justice Street and his two fellow judges. There were four arguments. One, Mr Justice Pring had allowed Detective Devlin to answer the jury's question about the hammer and thus put hearsay before the jury. Two, Mr. Justice Pring had not treated Dr. Campbell's evidence properly and had not correctly instructed the jury on the question of motive and on the question of insanity. 3. Witness Penryn Robbins, who testified as to Keith and George King having been on friendly terms at the inquiry, had not been compelled to appear at the trial. 4. The defence could provide fresh evidence to show further insanity in the Shaw family history. The first three grounds were all rejected. Mr Justice Street and his colleagues found that Mr Justice Pring had erred by letting Detective Devlin answer the question about the hammer, but he'd quickly told the trial jury that the evidence was hearsay and to disregard it. Whether Mr Justice Pring had been firm enough in this was open to question, but the verdict would not have hinged on this minor detail. The judges also found that Mr Justice Pring had correctly performed his duties regarding evidence and in his directions and summations. As for witness Penryn Robbins, if he'd been so important, the defence should have asked for him during the trial rather than after it. 
But on the fourth ground, the bench granted leave for the defence to file an affidavit about any new insanity evidence. Mr Justice Street adjourned for the weekend. When court resumed on Monday, affidavits from Keith and his father John were presented. They said that Robert McLean, Keith's uncle, his mother's much older brother, had also been confined to a Tasmanian lunatic asylum. As for why this wasn't raised at the trial, Keith had only learned of it on the 23rd of June from his father. That was, after he'd been convicted. John's deposition was that he had only just learned it then from his wife, Margaret, Keith's mother. Why she hadn't raised it sooner wasn't explained. Documentation was presented that proved that Robert McLean had died in 1902 in the Mental Diseases Hospital in New Norfolk in Tasmania. That was the same institution where his own grandmother had died insane in 1890, as heard during the trial. Nevertheless, the bench dismissed this alone as sufficient for a new trial. Keith Barrister said more evidence might still be secured. Mr Justice Street and the other judges reserved judgment until the next sitting of the court. Almost from the very moment that George King had been battered, what Keith Shaw had said and done might have been seen to be consistent with his claim of insanity. Insanity had been the entire basis of his defence. But just before the full court sat again, just before Keith had his last chance at an appeal, he decided to tell the truth for the very first time. He'd kept this from everyone. His brother, his family, his legal team, and his psychiatrists. Keith hadn't killed George King for his diamond ring, or because some goddess who lived in the brightest star in the sky had ordered him to do it. While he and Lionel had been in Long Bay awaiting their trial, Keith had first intimated to his brother that he'd been keeping a secret not even their legal team knew. But Keith told Lionel that he couldn't and wouldn't say what it was. Four months after George King's murder, Keith finally came clean to his barrister, Mr Breckenridge. Keith made and signed an affidavit. When the full court resumed on Friday the 3rd of August, Mr Breckenridge first submitted what had been promised, that was, new evidence regarding insanity. Yet, this was only another affidavit from the old Tasmanian man, Edward Pitfield, who'd known the McLean family. He deposed that Robert McLean had been an eccentric and excitable fellow prior to his incarceration in the mental hospital. This added precisely nothing to what had already been presented to the court. But Mr Pitfield's recollections weren't why they were really there. Keith's affidavit was now submitted. It read, On the night of Sunday, April 1, I was sitting on my bed when Mr King came in and, after some conversation, told me he was going out for a walk with some friends and asked me to come to his room when he returned later on. I then left my room and went to the park, where, after amusing myself for some time on a swing, I felt sick and lay down and went to sleep. I had with me at this time a hammer, which I carried with me at night for protection, as my revolver was broken. This hammer I had had for some time before Mr. King came to the California, as my brother Lionel can testify. On leaving the park, I went back to Mr. King's room, and after some conversation, he produced a bottle of whiskey and gave me some, as he had done on the previous night. Keith went on. 
After some conversation with him, at his suggestion, I took my clothes off, except my shirt, and got into Mr. King's bed. I placed my other clothes that I had taken off on another bed in the room, which was close to Mr. King's bed. After a while, Mr. King started to interfere with me, and I began to get excited. He then hurt me, and I immediately jumped out of bed, seized the hammer, and struck him with it a number of times. Keith concluded, I have always refused when questioned to tell any of the above facts, although I did tell my solicitor and the various doctors that Mr. King had invited me to his room on the Sunday night. But I mentioned to my brother Lionel that neither he nor Mr. McIntosh knew what had really occurred between Mr. King and myself that night. An affidavit from Lionel was also submitted. It read, one day at the penitentiary, some weeks before the trial, Appellant and I were speaking about the case and Appellant said to me, You don't know what happened between Mr. King and me that night. I can't tell you. I said, Did you tell Mr. McIntosh? And he said, No, he doesn't know either. Mr. Breckenridge asked that the court now order a new trial so that Keith could establish the true facts. And in this new trial, the question of insanity could also be revisited. Was Keith Shaw at long last telling the truth? In 1917 in New South Wales, homosexuality was a serious crime and punishable by up to 14 years in prison. While that was severe, it was less severe than going to the gallows. Though for some men, being exposed as a homosexual would have been a fate worse than death so he might have been keeping quiet out of shame. Could this shame have erupted out of him as panic that saw him batter Mr. King? In 1917, the term homosexual panic was three years from being coined by American psychiatrist Edward J. Kempf. He described it as panic caused by the, quote, pressure of uncontrollable perverse sexual cravings. Dr. Kempf identified it as an acute dissociative disorder, meaning it disrupted memory and perception. From this line of thinking would arise the legal strategy that became known as the homosexual or gay panic defence. This was used as a strand of self-defence argument in cases of both wanted and unwanted advances, usually between men. So it was possible in the case of Keith Shaw, even if such psychology and legal strategies had yet to be given names. Yet, to make the scenario fit the facts, Keith had had to admit to getting into bed nearly naked with Mr. King, but also to putting his clothes on a nearby bed in order to explain how they'd been blood-soaked. Obviously, his homosexual panic defense would make no sense if he'd been fully dressed. But Keith's story also had to explain why he'd taken the hammer to the room in the first place. In his telling, he'd regularly taken it with him for self-defense. Except, of course, he'd initially said he'd bought it on the Saturday as part of his plan. Then, of course, there was the sheer severity of the attack. Medical evidence had shown the first blow would have rendered Mr. King unconscious and perhaps even killed him instantly. But Keith had rained down at least another nine blows, and there was no evidence at all of any struggle. So there really could be no self-defense argument. Moreover, his gay panic defense didn't explain him taking the diamond ring, the cash, or putting blankets out the window to be romantic. Nevertheless, it seemed that what Keith hoped was that a new jury might hear his story and pity him as a poor boy who'd been led astray and then preyed upon. 
But for them to do this, they'd have to overlook all of his statements to the police and to psychiatrists and what he'd said from the doc during the trial when he'd claimed he didn't remember anything. Had he been lying then? Or was he lying now? Of course, Keith's claim was a shock development. Many newspapers only alluded to the contents of the affidavit, enough for readers to understand that a serious allegation had been made against the deceased. The Blue Mountain Echo was one of those papers. It declined to give details of what it called a vile affidavit. But the Echo's discretion had seemingly extended to also not reporting earlier that the brothers had been putting around this sort of claim when first under arrest in Katoomba. Quote, Callous and cowardly, as the past record of the crime read, the latest development created a feeling of horror and utter disgust against the condemned man among mountain people, some of whom knew how flippantly the subject matter of the late development was voiced here by the accused and his brother before even the inquiry was held. If the echo was to be believed, the Shaw brothers had four months ago been joking about making such a claim against Mr. King. If it had been the truth, why not tell the police then? One very obvious reason was that the dead man's brother was heading for Katoomba and they'd have to face him at the inquest. John King would certainly have denied his brother had been a homosexual, even if it was true. But if Keith and Lionel had been talking about it back in April, then what they'd both just opposed, i.e. that Keith had kept it a secret these past four months, was another lie. Mr. Justice Street did not delve into most of these angles in his decision. He said Keith Shaw's appeal had been heard on the basis of new evidence of insanity. That had been presented and was insufficient for a new trial. The content of the affidavits regarding Mr. King similarly didn't warrant an appeal. He said they were in fact at odds with the defence already presented. The two other judges concurred. Keith's appeal was dismissed and he went back to Long Bay Jail. Was Keith Shaw insane? As I said at the start, this mystery remains a why done it. We just can't know. There was evidence of previous mental disturbance, but there was also evidence he'd known what he was doing was wrong. As for the gay panic defence, it seemed a last-ditch attempt to smear the real victim in the hope a jury could be swayed. But there was also another possibility that wasn't raised at the time. That was that Keith was just a nihilistic young man with a death wish who'd killed for the thrill of it. He'd taken the hammer to Mr. King's room and, seemingly without a real motive, he'd battered the man beyond recognition. Then he'd taken the ring and the cash and he'd tied the blankets into a rope like some character from a film show. Keith had described doing all of this in a tone that read like amused glee. I opened the door of Mr. King's room with absolute pleasure and walked straight over to the bed and dealt him seven or eight blows with no more conscience than if I had been serving tennis balls. Quote, He had made another idea come into my then amused mind, an idea to be romantic, so I tied a couple of blankets together and sat on the window for two or three minutes thinking if there was anything else I might do. Keith's demeanour, self-satisfied, gleeful, even triumphant, had remained this way in the cell the night of his arrest and then two weeks later at the committal hearing. 
for that matter, Lionel's attitude had been the same. Lionel may or may not have known what was going to happen, but the footsteps in the corridor certainly suggested an accomplice to the actual crime at the time it was committed. Certainly Keith had not been the one running from the locked room. At the very least, when Lionel found out what his brother had done, he didn't seem at all perturbed. He went to play billiards and to see a movie, and then he denied everything to the police for as long as he possibly could. He also said he hoped Keith would kill himself rather than be arrested. Yet Lionel claimed he loved his brother more than life itself. So why wish for his brother to commit suicide? To save Keith from the noose? Or to save Lionel from what Keith might say? In the cells and at the inquest, the Shaw brothers seemed pleased by what they'd done. To paraphrase Keith, it was like their amused minds found it an absolute pleasure. It was only two months later, at the trial, that Keith had really leaned into the insanity defence, and Lionel had cast himself as a loving brother who'd been in shock in the wake of the tragedy. Then, with Keith found guilty, and knowing Mr Pitfield's affidavit about Robert McLean's insanity wasn't going to sway the judges, they'd finally decided to play the Mr King as Predator card. In this episode, we've referenced people and characters and concepts that hadn't come into prominence in 1917. The locked room hotel murder mystery in a mountains resort town might have been something yet to be published Agatha Christie would dream up. Both Keith and Lionel might have been physical prototypes for the cartoon character that Jimmy Banks would soon call Ginger Meggs. Keith's supposed sudden obsession with the diamond ring and his murderous determination to possess it at any cost made him sound a lot like J.R.R. Tolkien's future villain Gollum. And, as we've just heard, Keith's last-ditch defence hadn't yet been defined as homosexual panic by psychiatrist Dr. Edward J. Kempf, who'd come up with that term in 1920. But the Shaw Brothers story brings to mind another couple of characters who'd soon be known for the crime of the century. In April 1917, Chicago lads Nathan Leopold Jr. and Richard Loeb were respectively 12 and 11 years old. Seven years later, aged 19 and 18, Leopold and Loeb became world infamous for the kidnapping and murder of 14-year-old boy Bobby Franks. It wasn't the simple fact of the murder that grabbed headlines all around the world. It was that they'd cold-bloodedly planned it as the perfect crime – just to prove they were superior to everyone and could get away with it. Leopold and Loeb were thrill killers. Keith Shaw, either acting alone or with his brother, had not committed the perfect crime. It was hard to think of one that was more imperfect. If Keith had killed for a thrill, on a messy impulse, and then realised there was no way to get away with it, then the very imperfection of the crime would fit an insanity defence particularly as such a strategy would be supported by much in his past, both his family history and his own statements, letters and behaviour. But there was one detail, the most striking detail, that had been supplied after the murder. That was the goddess, the one who lived in the brightest star in the sky. Where had she come from? Psychiatrist Dr. Campbell had heard about her from Keith on the 5th of June. 
it's possible she was conjured entirely from his fevered or even mad imaginings. But as we've heard, Keith also referenced feeling like a character from a picture show. And it was on the record that he and Lionel were avid moviegoers, as were most Australians at this time. That made me wonder if there'd been any films released recently that could have served as some sort of inspiration. Using Trove's historic newspapers and searching 1917 by Goddess produced articles and advertisements from February onwards for a much-talked-about, sense-abating film called Diana the Huntress. This movie had been acclaimed as fine artistry in its depiction of the goddess from Roman mythology whose name is similar to the Latin words for sky and daylight. Diana, the goddess of wild animals and the hunt and the moon. The first frames of the film Diana the Huntress, which you can see on YouTube, depict this beautiful figure standing in the moon with her bow and her arrow. Had Keith seen it in the weeks before the murder? We don't know, but it is possible. What the Trove search also revealed, by accident, was that the same week Keith told his goddess story to his psychiatrist in Long Bay, a handful of New South Wales newspapers announced they were about to republish a popular old mystery novel in serial form. It was called The Goddess, A Demon, and it was by the popular horror writer Richard Marsh who, in his day, was as popular as Bram Stoker, who gave us Dracula. The newspapers that were about to reprint The Goddess, A Demon as a serial were based in country areas, so it would have been difficult for Keith to see these articles in Long Bay. But Keith may have already read the entire book. The Goddess, A Demon was first published in London in 1900. Copies would have been sold down under and still be found in libraries and second-hand stores. The story might also be available in any number of people's scrapbooks because The Goddess, A Demon had been first serialised in Australian newspapers that year. The Goddess, A Demon opens in a lodging house. A narrator, John Ferguson, awakes from a nightmare in which he's seen his neighbour Edwin Lawrence being torn to shreds. Then, through his open window, comes a beautiful woman who's covered in blood and who has no memory of what happened. John soon discovers that his nightmare is real. Edwin Lawrence has been cut to pieces. Here's the description of the discovery. Quote, Edwin Lawrence lay face foremost on the floor. All about him, the carpet was stained with blood. His clothes were soaked. Had it not been for his clothes, I should not have certainly known that it was Lawrence because when we turned him over, we found that his face and head had been cut and hacked to pieces. In my time, I have seen men who have come to their death by violence, but never had I seen such an extraordinary sight as he presented. The rest of the book deals with the identity of the murderer. So who is it? John himself, our unreliable narrator? The amnesiac woman he's covering for. Maybe it's Edwin Lawrence's dissolute brother. Or is it a supernatural demon goddess? Richard Marsh's book can be considered weird fiction, and it lives up to it by blurring the lines of identity, reality, and insanity. The author was hugely popular at the turn of the century, and he sold a lot of copies of this book. So it's possible that Keith, who was noted as a voracious reader, had been one of its fans. 
Point being, he might have been inspired, consciously or unconsciously, sanely or insanely, by the film Diana the Huntress and the book The Goddess a Demon. Or it might just be coincidence. Leopold and Loeb would be saved from the hangman in America by the famous attorney Clarence Darrow. Keith Shaw's fate wasn't determined by such a famous figure. Instead, he was saved by the 12 ordinary men of the jury who'd recommended him to mercy on account of his mental condition. They hadn't been convinced he was insane, but they did believe there was something wrong. The New South Wales executive took this recommendation and commuted his sentence to life behind bars. The government's little hanging spree was over, and there wouldn't be another execution in New South Wales until 1924. When Lionel Shaw had faced his trial, he'd made a statement to the jury saying he'd always been honest. But in mid-June 1918, he was back in the Central Police Court, charged with stealing a case of condensed milk valued at £1.13. Lionel was treated under the First Offenders Act because he'd been acquitted previously, the newspapers reporting he'd been given a 12-month good behaviour bond, though he'd say he also got one month's hard labour. Two months later, on the 13th of August 1918, Lionel joined the AIF. The Great War was still being fought, and he was going to do his bit. His mother and father signed his papers because he was aged 20 and 10 months, two months short of being considered an adult. Lionel's military records are available at the National Archives of Australia. Like all recruits, he had to sign an attestation paper. Question 13, part 4, asked, Have you ever suffered from mental or nervous disease? Lionel answered, No. Part 5 of that question, Has any member of your family suffered from any of the above diseases? If so, state particulars. Lionel answered, No. Shaw family insanity had been a big part of his brother's defence. Lionel had just lied. And he'd also just lied about himself. Now, it was understandable that he might not want to admit such things on a military attestation paper. But he'd signed his name to lies, and that was an offence under the War Powers Act and other legislation. Lionel's military file notes that at Liverpool camp, in his first week of training, he was anxious to learn. The second week, he was improving. But that was as good as it was going to get. On the 10th of September 1918, Lionel wrote a letter to his superiors. The neatly handwritten letter is in his file. Quote, Sir, it is in the interests of both my fellow recruits and myself that I hereby apply for my discharge. I would bring under your notice that I am the twin brother of H. Keith Shaw, sometime back tried and convicted for murder. Lionel went on. Apart from the fact that some of the recruits who happen to know me seem to resent my right to be one of them, I am under the impression that my brother, now undergoing a life sentence in Goulburn Jail, and who I love better than my life, should not be there, as it was according to Keith, a case of justifiable homicide. I have been thinking over both the resentment on the part of the recruits and Keith's injustice every night to such an extent that my nerves are just fit for my entering a private hospital. And unless I do go there, I feel that I shall go mad. Lionel continued, I might add that some time ago, after having been admitted to the reception house for attempted suicide, my parents were going to put me in a private mental hospital, 
but I thought there was no necessity for doing so, so did not go. I think you'll see that I am doing right in making this application. Trusting you will treat this confidentially and that you understand my position, I am, sir, yours respectfully, Lionel Shaw. Upon receipt of this correspondence, Lionel's commanding officer ordered, Have this man paraded to medical officer with this letter. Lionel was, and the medical officer a few days later sent him to board at the field hospital. Lionel was not admitted as a patient, as far as the record allows, and that suggests he was being segregated, perhaps for his own protection, perhaps also for the morale of other recruits. But Lionel was not discharged, and that was what he wanted. So on the 25th of September, he went absent without leave and was arrested the following day. He was fined 20 shillings. Lionel wrote a second letter a week later. This time, he went over his commanding officer to the camp commandant. Quote, Sir, I wish to bring before you the following matter which requires your attention. I wrote some time ago to the OC of the company re my fellow recruits resenting my being amongst them. Well, time has not improved matters, and so I am putting the exact position before you. Lionel went on. Besides the fact of my being the twin brother of a boy found guilty of murder being known, my own case has now got about, viz. that I was sentenced to one month's hard labour for stealing, and that I am out on twelve months' good behaviour, and so you can understand the remarks which are passed every day not being too pleasant. One recruit went so far as to call me a murderer to my face in front of a lot of other recruits. I might say that I thought it best to treat him with contempt. And so, under these circumstances, I would submit to you, sir, that I be discharged from the army. Lionel's letter displayed his typical arrogance and condescension. More than that, though, it was a presumptuous address to a man so far up the ranks. In any case, it didn't achieve the result he wanted. So, a week later, Lionel absconded again, this time being absent without leave for two days and he was fined another 20 shillings. Two weeks later, he was off again, this time remaining at large for a week. Lionel was apprehended on the 4th of November. He was fined one pound and docked seven days' pay. Of course, at the end of that seven days, there was cause for celebration, because it was the 11th of November, and the war was finally over. While Keith was entering his third year in Goulburn Jail and Lionel was having a shameful end to the war, their eldest brother Stanley was getting married and embarking on a quiet life. In June 1919, Keith and Lionel's father John died at the age of 66. Keith and Lionel's other older brother Ronald married in December 1923 and similarly lived his life out of the spotlight. In mid-March 1924, Lionel Shaw was back in the news. The Daily Guardian newspaper had mistakenly printed his name on a list of men whose death sentences had been commuted. Lionel issued a writ for £20,000. Simply adjusted for inflation, that's $2 million today. But in terms of actual buying power, it'd be more like 4 or $5 million. The Daily Guardian's parent company, Smith's Newspapers, issued an apology, saying that their report had been based on inaccurate police records that had been supplied to them. But Lionel, represented by solicitor Mr McIntosh, didn't drop the writ, and it was settled out of court in September that year, 
with him receiving an undisclosed sum. In a manner of speaking, seven years after he'd said he wouldn't have kept George King's diamond ring because of superstition, he'd actually made a substantial amount of money from the man's death at the hands of his brother. In November 1927, upon the retirement of Inspector Devlin, the Sunday Times briefly recalled the California murder case. As for Keith, whose mental state had been the subject of so much debate, he appeared to have found peace of mind. Quote, Prison authorities say that he has not given them a day's trouble since his sentence, and that he has remained an insatiable reader. Despite his death sentence being commuted to life in prison, Keith Shaw would be released. I've not been able to determine the precise date, but a 1933 electoral roll found at Ancestry.com.au shows he was living in Malara then under his own name and working as a clerk. At this time, Keith was 36 years old, still a relatively young man. The same electoral roll shows that his beloved mother Margaret was living down the road with Lionel, who was then working as a mechanic. By 1935, they'd all be under the same roof again, one happy family. And even after Lionel got married in 1936, they'd all lived together for another two decades. Keith Shaw would most often work as a labourer, but Lionel would again serve in the military during World War II. At the end of July 1942, he enlisted with the Royal Australian Navy, and he was a constable at the newly commissioned HMAS base Penguin at Balmoral. Lionel, now 45, was a military policeman. Did anyone remember what he'd once been accused of or what his brother had done? By 1942, it had been 25 years, so possibly not. Lionel, who signed up for the duration of the war, seemed to be good at his job. His character was consistently marked as VG for very good and his efficiency was rated as satisfactory. Lionel would serve for more than a decade until his demobilisation in July of 1953. Lionel's wife died in June 1957. His and Keith's mother Margaret died just three months later. She was 88. And three months after Lionel put his mother in the ground, he was dead too, dying suddenly in January 1958 at the age of 61. In the space of just six months, Keith lost the people who'd comprised his entire household for decades. His sister-in-law, his mother, and his twin brother. Keith Shaw died in 1964 in St. Leonard's. He was 66, meaning he'd lived 22 years longer than the 44-year-old man he'd murdered. George King's life had been ended at the California in Katoomba. Unlike other guests who'd been there for extended stays, he'd just come up for the weekend. Mr. King had been in the wrong place at the wrong time in the orbit of the wrong person. As for the others who'd been there that autumn morning, they surely never forgot it, but they got on with their lives. Widow Sybil Alexander saw her daughters grow up and she passed away in Victoria in 1959 at the ripe old age of 90. William Hollingworth, who'd been a clerk in the Lands Department in Queensland and who'd shouted out, Watch your game, rose to be the Secretary of the Lands Department. He retired due to ill health in August 1946 and died the very next day. Perhaps a broken heart had something to do with it. He and his wife had four sons, 
and two of them, Alex and Robert, were RAAF men who were killed during the war. Penryn Robbins, who'd been an audit clerk for the Sydney Morning Herald, was, by 1927, a director of the Val Morgan Cinema Advertising Company. He was also managing director of another company called Film Ads. In September 1929, a company called Vocalion imported the first 33 RPM disc-cutting lathe. This technology was the first to be used locally in an effort to cut discs for synchronised sound recordings for moving pictures. In a May 1932 Tasmanian newspaper article about the actor and elocutionist E. Stanley Brooks, we find this, quote, Regarding the talkies, he was the only one engaged to talk for the first talkie experiments in Australia. These experiments were conducted in Melbourne at the Vocalion Gramophone Studios by Filmads Proprietary Limited. The Vocalion process, as you can imagine, wasn't much good for dialogue, but it worked for advertisements where you could use a voiceover. As noted in an October 1989 Film News article about the true birth of Australian sound films, Robin's film ads used the Vocalion system extensively for commercials and also for sponsored documentary films. So Penryn Robbins made his own small contribution to our cinema history. He'd have a long and successful life in business. And if he held anything against Katoomba, it didn't stop him from getting married there in 1945. P.H. Robbins died in April 1956, aged 71. Arthur and Florence Anderson would continue to run the California, which didn't seem to suffer for the horror its walls had seen. But a professional and personal falling out saw Arthur and Florence separate in life and business in 1928. Their private lives would be aired in court a couple of years later, after Mrs. Anderson assaulted a woman she believed had become her estranged husband's home-wrecking mistress. The scandal sheet Truth newspaper lapped it up running a 1,400-word account of their fiery back-and-forth in court. We started with Arthur Anderson, and we'll end with him too. In April 1917, he'd come face-to-face with what Keith Shaw had done to George King. Mr Anderson had for weeks been host to this killer and to his brother. They'd seemed like polite young men, when in fact, they'd been monsters. What were the chances that he'd ever, even remotely, be caught up in such a case ever again? At 2.30pm on the 12th of October 1927, the California was visited by a well-dressed young man named William Guy Higgs. William was selling electric refrigerators, going to Katoomba's guest houses and trying to get the proprietors excited about forking out for this new technology. Young Mr. Higgs was up from Sydney on this mission, and he'd been accompanied by his two brothers. Arthur Anderson talked with William for a few minutes. The young fellow seemed quite rational. What the California's proprietor didn't know right then was that just hours earlier, a wealthy city businessman had been cold-bloodedly shot dead further down the mountains. William Higgs and his two brothers would soon be charged with this murder. So, while Arthur Anderson would only play a minor role in this second mystery, he would again find himself in court testifying in a case where seemingly smart and sophisticated Sydney brothers had to answer for bloody murder in the Blue Mountains. 
I've actually already made an episode about this case and its intersections with Sydney's famous razor wars. This three-parter is called Revolvers and Razors. You can hear it now as an Apple subscriber or Patreon supporter. Links are in your show notes. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. As always, thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.